1 Corinthians chapter 9. I hope that is the prayer of your heart. If that's not the prayer of your heart, then really what we're learning about in Corinthians has done you no good, I'm sure. If you are not desiring to grow, then when Paul teaches upon these aspects of sanctification, particularly these difficult aspects such as Christian liberty and the limitation of one's liberty for the sake of the weaker brethren, for the sake of that which is expedient... you're not going to be very inclined to obey. Because what Paul is exhorting us unto here is higher ground. Is to, to, to set ourselves aside in order to pursue or to elevate something else. And we've talked about many facets already. We've talked about setting ourselves aside in order to elevate that which is best for the Lord. We've talked about setting ourselves aside in order to elevate the conscience of the weaker brethren. We're going to be continuing this today. You know, last week at the nursing home, I preached on our memory work. Our memory work found in the book of Matthew. And as I did so, recall in Matthew 16, verses 24 through 26, our memory work says this, For whosoever shall save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And I spoke on ambition. That drive. That motivation. What motivates you in this life? What is driving you toward your goals? It is just the desire to dominate what drives you? Is the desire to be the best what drives you? Is a certain paycheck what drives you? What is your motivation? When you get up in the morning and you do what you do, when you come to church on a Sunday morning, when you read your Bible, when you pray, what is driving you toward that? What are your motivations? Why do you do what you do? Not just, why, not just what you do, but why do you do? what you do. Why do you do the things you do? Why do you go door knocking? Why don't you go door knocking? Why do you hand out tracts when you're at the grocery store? Why do you place a tract with your tip at the restaurant? Why don't you place a tract with your tip at the restaurant? Why don't you hand out tracts at the grocery store? Motivations and actions. We've already seen these. Motivations that are intended to drive the Christian life. We are intended to be driven by that which is best. We are intended to be driven by the conscience of a weaker brother. And last time in 1 Corinthians, we spent our time understanding that. The biblical principle of the weaker brethren. Paul told them that this church does indeed have liberties. That Christians do indeed have liberties that a piece of meat's association with those things which are wrong does not inherently make the meat wrong. We talked about that. But Paul's focus was not upon Christian liberty. Much rather, it was upon Christian responsibility to limit liberties for the sake of the weaker brethren. So Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8.1 that knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth, we recall. If you think you have knowledge and you are standing upon your knowledge and you are asserting your knowledge above your brethren, Paul says you're proud. 
What does, what does love do? Well, love edifies. He then went on to say in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 9, But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. So take heed. Yes, you have liberty in Christ. But make sure that your liberty is not causing a brother or sister in Christ to stumble at your actions, to stumble in their faith. Recall Paul would say in Romans chapter 14, verse 20, For meat destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eateth with offense. So he says, don't destroy what, the, what God is doing in the heart of somebody by offending them by doing something that they think is wrong, even though you may have the liberty to do it. Your freedom in Christ and your privilege to assert those liberties are not worth destroying what God is doing in the heart of another believer. So in your own life and in our church's life, we must take careful steps to ensure that to the best of our ability, our actions are not going to be a stumbling block to a weaker conscience. This is not just being a thoughtful Christian. This is the duty of a Christian. And so, as we consider what we, as we consider again what we saw last week, Roman, or 1 Corinthians 8, verse 12 says, But when ye sin so against the brethren, ye wound their weak conscience, or and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. So it's not just about them and you. It's about you and Christ. This is a big deal, folks. This idea of liberty and particularly the, the responsibilities that come with our liberty, this is a big deal to God. And as we step into 1 Corinthians 9, Paul is going to show us how it is he personally applies these principles to his own life. He's given some concepts and he said right there at the end of chapter 8, if meat will make my brother to offend, then I will not eat meat. But now he's going to use his own life and ministry his own example before the brethren as the example of how it is he takes the teachings of Christ in regard to limiting his liberties and has carried them over into his own life. And as he does so, he's going to present one more reason why we need to be willing to limit our liberties. We need to know our liberties. We can live in our liberties. But he gives one more reason to limit our liberties and that reason is the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. He has already mentioned that Paul is willing to limit himself in every physical or material way for the conscience of a brother. But Paul's determination to limit himself did not stop simply at things in this life that are, for lack of a better term, discretionary. You know, it's kind of easy to get rid of those discretionary things in our lives if we really want to, isn't it? This time of Lent that other denominations are going through right now is a good example of this. It's easy for people to give up things that aren't really a necessity. Number one, when they know they're going to be getting it back anyway. And number two, when it's not really a necessity. I've always thought Lent was kind of strange. There's, there's several, perhaps, virtues to it if we thought about it the right way. But you know what most people do is they get rid of something that they should never have had in their life to begin with for a certain number of days as some means of thinking that they're being more devoted to God because they're getting rid of something that shouldn't be there to begin with or that's already out of balance in their lives, right? 
And so they're coming into balance for 40 days of the year and thinking that's somehow making them more devoted to God, only to fall back out of balance, or only to fall back into that vice after 40 days. doesn't make any sense to me, really. Not saying it can't be done right, so please don't take my meaning wrong. It can be done right. But it's easy to limit ourselves in discretionary matters, isn't it? But what happens when the rubber meets the road? What happens when for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ or for the sake of the weaker brethren, you are being asked to limit yourself in a much deeper way? You are being asked to limit yourself in a much more practical way. Paul didn't just limit himself in regard to preferences or discretion. He didn't just limit himself in regard to eating meat or not eating meat. We'll see in this chapter that he limited the very ability that he had to bring in income to live for the sake of the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He limited his ability to live within the culture that he understood and loved and knew, the Jewish culture, in order that he could reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He didn't just set aside those things that really don't matter. He set aside big things for the gospel. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Look with me in Romans chapter 9, verse 1. We're going to be skipping around a little bit. This will be kind of a two-part message. It's not really a two-part. It will be two separate messages, but I'm going to be jumping. Uh, if, you, if you noticed uh, today, I'm covering verses 1 through 6 and then 15 through 23 this morning. Actually, you can see it right there at the bottom, can't you, of the screen. So let's begin reading in verse 1. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? In other words, does he not have liberty? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not ye my work in the Lord? If I be not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am unto you. For the seal of mine apostleship are ye in the Lord. Mine answer to them that do examine me is this. Have we not power to eat and to drink? Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles? And as the brethren of the Lord and Cephas? Or I only and Barnabas, have we... Have not we power to forbear working? Paul begins by reestablishing the authority by which he ministers. He says, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Paul was not simply an elder in the church, though he was one of those in in, uh, a church. Paul was one of those few men called to be what we call big A apostles. (laughs) The word apostle in the New Testament simply means a messenger. And so there were those that were messengers, but then we also recognize a group of people that were ordained by God with what we call apostolic authority. And the scriptures tell us that these who had apostolic authority, Ephesians 2.20 makes it very clear that they were a part of the foundation of the church. Ephesians 2 verse 20 says that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the church, that the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church, And then the church is then built upon that foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. Well, there are no more prophets, there are no more apostles, and one of the reasons we know that is because the foundation is now laid. There are other reasons. but So there are no more modern-day apostles or modern-day prophets in the sense of those that had apostolic authority, those that had power, miracles, uh, prophetic utterances, those sorts of things. Because that was the foundation for the church. Framed after Jesus Christ, founded upon the apostles and prophets, that would be the Word of God, the church built upon it. 
And Paul was one of those big A apostles. They, he met the divine qualifications for being a foundational um, structure, a foundational piece of the New Testament church, and carry with himself divine authority. Now that function has passed away. But Paul had it. And so he says, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? I've seen Him. I've learned under Him. I've spoken to Him. You, Corinthian church, you're my work in the Lord. You are here because I came to Corinth, preached the Gospel, you accepted the Gospel, we started a church. You are a manifestation of what God has done through me. Verse 2, he says, If I be not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am to you. Even if others would doubt the apostleship of Paul, which apparently many did in that day, Paul was regularly forced in the Scriptures to defend his apostolic authority. Yet he says, You as believers should have no doubt recognize the marks of my apostleship because you were saved under the marks of my apostleship. These believers had been saved under his ministry and it had been one filled with signs and wonders. Perhaps you remember when we started this series way, way back in chapter 2. Paul said this in verses 5 and 6. Excuse me, 4 and 5. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your face should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The Corinthians were very wise. They had a lot of knowledge. They were intellectuals. Paul knew he wasn't going to go there and reason with them. He tried that. He tried it one day and it didn't go well. <laughs> he got called to the amphitheater. They wanted to stone him. The Jews wanted to stone him. Eventually that was dispersed. It was ugly. Paul said, that's not the way I'm going to be able to win these folks. So what did he do? He used the Spirit of God and he demonstrated the power of God through signs and wonders to these people. He demonstrated that he carried the authority of God and many believed and many received. They had seen him use the privileges of his apostolic ministry and of any believers, their confidence in his authority would have been very strong. But Paul had received a somewhat controversial reputation in the early church. We talked about this a little bit already several weeks ago as well. The Jews thought Paul to be a pretty liberal guy. His teachings on liberty encouraged well-meaning believers to forsake their piety, right? He had to go to the church in Jerusalem and the church in Jerusalem said, you're going to need to answer for yourself because there's a lot of Jews here in Jerusalem, a lot of Christian Jews who are very angry at you because you teach the Gentiles that they don't need to be circumcised. And you are, in fact, also teaching the Jews that they don't need to be circumcised. Are you diverting from the traditions of our fathers? Are you diverting from the law? And they had to settle that issue. So the Jews thought he was a liberal and a bit of a troublemaker. The false teachers sought to invalidate his authority by charging him as a man who was only seeking money or fame. He's a traveling minister seeking nothing but money, seeking to elevate himself. And so in answer to those who would examine him, that word literally meaning to scrutinize or to investigate or to interrogate, he said this in verse 3. He says, My answer to them that do examine me is this. And he goes on to give that in verses 4 and 5. 
This word examine, before we move on, it's a word that's used 14 times in the New Testament. Eight of those 14 times are found in the book of 1 Corinthians. So this is a word, this idea of scrutiny or investigation or interrogation comes up many, many times in the book of 1 Corinthians. And that should give us a little bit of an indication of what Paul was up against as he was trying to assert his authority to these believers. So his response is this, verses 4-6. through six. Have we not power to eat and to drink? The we here is the apostles, him and Barnabas. Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles? And as the brethren of the Lord and Cephas? Or I only am Barnabas. Have, we, have not we power to forbear working? He says the fact that he's an apostle and a minister of Jesus Christ didn't change the fact that he could get married. He had the power to get married. Peter, Cephas, he was married. The brothers of Jesus, they're married. They can eat and drink. He can eat meat offered to idols. He has these powers just like any Christian has powers. And then he says in verse 6, have we not power to forbear working? We're going to talk about that next week. We're going to skip that for now. But we will come back to it. Notice verse 12. Paul says, If others be partaker of this power over you, are not we rather? Nevertheless, we have not used this power. He's speaking specifically of the power to forbear working and have the church sustain his living. But suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. Paul says he and Barnabas as apostles have willingly forgone their own liberty in Christ for the direct purpose of furthering the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as Paul gives this example, he's doing so in order that he might encourage the church to follow his example. To be willing to forego their own liberties in Christ for the sake of their own ability to minister to others, both believers and unbelievers alike. Now, as I mentioned, we're going to skip the bulk of this chunk from verse 6 to verse 14. I did mention verse 12 here, but we're going to skip the rest of this until next week and we'll address it next week. In these verses, Paul is elaborating upon this freedom, his freedom to forbear working. And next week, we'll look at the church's obligation to provide for the man of God who ministers to them according to the Word of God as taught here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. But for this week we're going to jump into verse 15. And notice what he says in verse 15. He says, But I have used none of these things, neither have I written these things, that, I should, that it should be so done unto me. For it were better for me to die than that any man should make my glorying void. Paul again reiterates in verse 15 that he has used none of these liberties that have been given to him. And he also makes it clear that he's not writing to them to guilt them. He's not trying to say, hint, hint, you haven't been giving me any money, and by the way, hint, hint, you're supposed to be. That wasn't what Paul was doing here. He said, in fact, I don't want it. Because in doing so, I would hinder the gospel of Jesus Christ in this area. He says he would rather die than take advantage of the liberties that he had in Christ. Wow! I would rather die, he says, than to take advantage of these liberties that I have in Christ. Because in doing so, I would know that I am personally hindering the gospel of Jesus Christ and that's the whole reason why he lives. If Paul could not be exemplifying the gospel of Jesus Christ, he had no purpose 
to live. He explains this in the next two verses, verses 16 and 17. Notice what he says, For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. He says that he has been called to preach the gospel as the very necessity of his life. This is God's utmost calling for him and the entire purpose that he exists. That for him not to preach the gospel would be for him to forsake the very reason why he's on this earth. Have you ever talked to somebody that feels like they have no reason for being on this earth or they're wondering about their reason? They say there must be some reason. There must be some purpose. They're seeking for that purpose. Do you know that you have a purpose? If you are a born-again believer in this room today, you have a purpose. You may not know, young children, what you're going to do when you get older, where, where you're going to work, or if you're going to be married, or who you're going to be married to, or where you're going to be living, or any of those things, but do you know you already have purpose? You may be settled, parent, adult, working and living and doing things, and yet you say, oh, it's so daily, it's so seems so meaningless, right? You live, you work, you die. You make money so that the government can take half of it and then you spend the rest in order to live so that you can maybe leave a little of it to the next folks and then you're dead. But beyond all of that, you've got something much deeper, something much greater. You have a purpose. And that purpose overlaps with Paul's purpose. Now, he was called to devote every element, every fiber of his being to this. He was called to forsake everything and to go and to travel and to to proclaim the gospel. You may not have been called to do all of that. But I guarantee you, you are called to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. On the authority of the Word of God, the Great Commission, the teachings of the epistles, you are called to be a light in a dark world, to be salt in this world, to be that candle on a candlestick, to manifest the glory of God and to proclaim the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have a purpose. Praise God, you have a purpose. Paul had a purpose. He saw his purpose. He knew his purpose. He knew what God had called him to do. And he was determined that he would reflect the willingness of his heart to perform his duty that he had become, or that had become the very purpose for his life, not only by doing what was asked of him, but also by doing it in such a way that he would be chargeable to no man. He says, I'm not just going to do what's asked of me in proclaiming the gospel and traveling and in, in um, going from place to place and starting churches and seeing people saved. I'm going to do it in such a way that nobody would ever be able to say he was doing it for his own gain. That nobody would ever be able to say he was doing this for his own benefit. His desire was that nobody could ever look at anything that he had ever done from the day he was saved, and see anything other than the glory of God and the purpose of God. What a heart for God that Paul had. What an example he is to us. And this is what he says in verses 17 and 18. That he obtains his reward when he delivers the gospel willingly. God has called him to be a Messenger of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he obtains his reward when he does what he's called to do. He says, if I do it willingly, 
if I willingly go out and proclaim the gospel unto every living creature, he says, I have a reward. But if I do it against my will, he says, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto him. What does that mean? Even when he does deliver the gospel unwillingly, there is placed upon him such a strong necessity driven by God's call that he does it. Only when he doesn't serve willingly, he may not receive the reward that spiritual fruit denying himself the joy that comes from having aligned himself with God's will for his life. And that's what he says in verse 18. That is the reward. He says, what is my reward then? What is the reward that God gives me for my labor? It's not money. It's not the church giving me money, he says. It's not that I can go and eat and drink and be merry, he says. It's not that I get weekends off, he says. What is the reward for his labor? Men, women, workers in this room, would you be doing what you were doing if you didn't get a paycheck? If you didn't know that there was a paycheck coming every two weeks, every month, would you continue to work? Would you continue to throw your effort toward that employer? Paul says, I'm not getting paid by you for what I do. I'm not getting physical, earthly benefits in this life for what I do. He says, what is my reward then? Verily that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge, that I abuse not my power in the gospel. He says, the greatest reward I have is that I can go from city to city and town to town and they can say, oh, Paul is coming again and there is not one person who could charge him and say, that man is doing this for his own gain and have any... And, and have that, that argument hold any water. If somebody came and looked at Paul and said, this guy's just doing it for his own gain. He's just doing it for the money. And then everyone says, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. He's never taken a dime from the church. He worked in this town to feed himself and spent every last free moment when he wasn't working preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. So... He couldn't have just been doing it for money. Well, he's just doing it for fame then. He's just doing it for fame. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. He never speaks of himself. He only ever speaks of Christ. He always takes the back seat. Paul says, that's my reward. Because that's what God has called me to do. And where is the fulfillment of his life? It's not when he can bring home that paycheck. It's not when he can sit down on the weekend and say, wow, that was a good week of ministry. His reward is when the, the Word of God has been glorified and magnified and he has been minimized. And when he sees that, he says, yes, I am fulfilling the purpose that God has given to me. The gospel of Jesus Christ as his greatest motivation. Verse 19, Paul says, For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. Paul's strategy in this life was to deny any and every freedom necessary to win the hearts and the minds of those whom he was seeking to minister unto. So what did this mean? This means Paul was a spiritual chameleon, if you will. 
Have you ever seen a chameleon change his colors to adapt to his environment? It's a pretty neat thing. There are several animals in the animal kingdom that do it. But they can change from green and they can become a little more brown or a little more yellow or whatever the case may be to adapt to the environment they're in. It's an amazing gift that God has given to chameleons. Paul was kind of that way as a minister. He ministered to the hearts of the people in the manner that was most likely to win them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So he says in verses 20 to 22, And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without the law, as without the law, being not without the law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without the law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Paul adapted his ministry to the needs of the environment and the culture in which he found himself in order that he might minister the gospel of righteousness unto them. When he was around Jews, he observed Jewish customs in order to win the Jews. When he was around those that submitted themselves strongly to the Mosaic law, he did so as well in order that he might win them. When he was around those that didn't submit themselves to the Mosaic law in custom, he willingly did not submit himself to the Mosaic law either so that he might win them. When he was around those that were weak in conscience, that's what he means there by weak, when he was around those that were weak in conscience, he allowed his conscience to assume their degree of sensitivity in order that he might win them. Now, as we consider this passage of Scripture, there are two very important things that must be pointed out because this Scripture is often abused and taken very heavily out of context. The first point is found in verse 21. He says in that parenthetical, being not without the law to God, but under the law to Christ. Paul states very clearly that when he says he lived without the law, outside of the law, literally anamas, that's the alpha privative on the word law or lawful, without the law. When he lived without the law, this had nothing to do with him living a life of sin to win sinners. Nothing at all. Recall back when we were talking about this in our lawful but not expedient series. We made it very clear that our liberties in Christ could easily give way to sin if we're not careful. That if we push the boundaries of our liberties, if we put the fence right up against the cliff, then if we fall over the fence, we're also falling off the cliff. That if we push the boundaries of our liberties, then we put ourselves in a dangerous position. Paul is not saying here that he engaged in sinful or even worldly behaviors to win sinners to Christ. Paul states without controversy that though he was willing to operate outside the law, that would be the Mosaic law, the law that the Jews would have submitted themselves unto, he never operates, ever, ever operates outside the law of Christ. Say the law of Christ. We talked about this a few weeks ago in our First John series on Tuesday evenings for those of you that were here. The fact that the Scriptures tell us in 1 John chapter 3 that um, sin is the transgression of the law. Well, what law is sin a transgression of? We know that it's not necessarily the, necessarily the Mosaic law because Jesus came and fulfilled the Mosaic law and we're not under the Mosaic law. We don't have to follow the Mosaic code. 
So that's not the law that sin is the transgression of. Well, it's this law that Paul is speaking of. It's Christ's law. Did you know that you're still under a law? You're not under the Mosaic law. You are indeed, however, under Christ's law. You are under the expectations of the Word of God, which is Jesus Christ. He is the Word of God incarnate, preserved for us, translated into English. We read it, we learn it, we understand it, and we are accountable to it. This is the law of Christ. Paul says that he never once operated outside of the law of Christ, the commands which Christ has placed upon believers to live distinct, separated, righteous lives. What that means is that these verses in no way support a model of church or Christianity that seeks to win the lost by making the church look like the world. These verses do not support that. They're used often to claim that. But these verses do not support making yourself look and act like the world to win the world. Paul did not sin to win sinners. He always maintained the distinctions of the commandments of Jesus Christ. He just adapted his methods. Now the second thing that is important to remember is the context in which these verses are found. Again, when people speak of these verses, they are typically speaking using these verses, I become all things to all men, and to the Jew I become like a Jew, to the, uh, under the law I become like that. They, they tend to use these verses in order to justify their liberties. But as we've looked in 1 Corinthians 8-10, through 10, what is Paul using these verses to do? Not to teach and justify liberties. He is using these verses to help the church, re- to teach the church how to restrain their liberties. When you study the passage, not only do we see that Paul is never outside of Christ's law, but we must understand that the overriding context is not about the freedoms we have in Christ, but the importance of limiting those freedoms. He didn't see becoming like a Jew as an exercising of his liberties. He saw it as a limiting of his liberties. He didn't even see becoming like those without the law as an exercising of his liberties. He saw it as a limiting of his liberties, as a way that he was adapting all of the freedoms he had in Christ to reach the people that he was around. I think of some churches out in Colorado, up in the mountains. Even a lot of churches down in in, uh, Florida. When I was interning at a church in Florida, the first time I showed up at that church, it was on a midweek service, and I showed up in a, as a matter of fact, it was the suit, brown suit, white shirt, brown tie, looked really good. I show up and they're all in button-ups and jeans. And I look around and I say, wow, I'm a bit out of place here. See, these weren't the typical uh, Baptist church wear a suit. They wore suits on Sunday, but, but wear a suit every, every service. Uh, a lot of midweek services have casual services and such in Baptist churches now. But these folks were backcountry folks and they were going to be casual. Colorado, up in the mountains, there are some churches where, you know what they wear to church? They wear their nice cowboy boots and their nice jeans and their bigger belt buckle 
and their nice cowboy hat. And if you come and you try to show up in a suit every week, then you're not going to gain a whole lot of credibility with them. And so Paul would say to the cowboy, become I like a cowboy that I might win the cowboys. That's the kind of thing Paul is speaking of here. Paul's statements here might have been difficult for the Corinthians to swallow. But that wouldn't have been because they thought Paul was justifying sinful pleasures. Much the opposite. Paul was telling them that they had the duty and the responsibility of living lives whereby they willingly limited their freedom in Christ to whatever degree necessary to win the lost and love the brethren. So for ministers to use these verses to justify their sin is not only doing an injustice to the verses, but it's doing an injustice to the context in which they are found. Verse 23, as we continue. Paul says, And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be a partaker thereof with you. And this is the last verse that we'll look at today. The whole point of what Paul has said thus far is is rooted in verse 23. Paul says that for the sake of the gospel, he would become a co-participant in their culture, the Corinthian culture and lifestyle, while maintaining the religious distinctives of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to live within the law of Jesus Christ. I'm going to maintain those distinctives, but I am going to adapt to the culture and lifestyle, those liberties that I do have in Christ, in order that I might win them to Christ. Paul became like them to win them. So, to put it in cliche terms, when in Rome, do like the Romans, right? When in Colorado, learn how to ski. When in Minnesota, learn how to fish. When in Florida, learn to like the beach. When in a Jew's home, respect, learn, and respect Jewish customs. When in China, respect the way the Chinese live. Allow the freedoms you have in Christ to abound unto the furtherance of the righteous distinctives of the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever you are. And that's what he's saying here. As we close, let's apply three points in our application this morning. You'll have recognized them from our lawful but not expedient series. This first point is very similar. Just because you have freedom doesn't mean you should use that freedom. The point is this. Paul had the freedom to eat, to drink, to get married, and even to be compensated for his ministry financially. But the dynamics of his ministry did not regularly lend themselves to exercising those freedoms. If his ministry had lended itself to those freedoms, then perhaps he would have used them. Perhaps he would have gotten married if his ministry lended itself to that. But he was traveling. He was living off of his own ability to sustain himself. It wouldn't have been a good idea for him to get married. It's commanded by God that the elders of the church, the pastors, the elders, the bishops are compensated. It is commanded by God. We'll see that next week. Paul could have expected that. Financial support. But he didn't accept it because of his ministry. Paul could have willingly eaten and drank things offered to idols, but he didn't for his ministry. What this means is that we need to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives in reference to our area of ministry, to the freedoms and limitations that this should place upon us, and be willing to limit ourselves in areas when necessary for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ.
So while it might be just fine for you to exercise certain liberties in Christ, it's not okay, perhaps for me as your pastor, to do the same. While it might be okay for you to do certain things, because I'm a pastor, because I need to represent the community, or to the, the, the church to the community, because I need to represent the gospel of Jesus Christ on a daily basis, maybe there are certain things that, well, I have the freedom to do it, but I'm not going to so that I can be a better minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by me not doing it, it's not a condemnation upon you doing it. And by you doing it, it's not saying that I'm doing something wrong by not doing it. It's just that my particular ministry has lended itself to certain limitations. While other people in churches might be able to exercise certain liberties, God has called you unto a church body where you might not be able to do the same or might not be comfortable doing the same. This is the essence of Paul's exhortation and his example. This might help many of you understand why we do some of the things that we do in the church as well. There are certain songs that we won't sing. Not to necessarily say that all the songs that we won't sing in this church, not to say that they're all wrong, But we have elevated our standard as a church to a level where we are not going to offend people. Where we are not going to hurt the weaker brethren. And so we choose our songs and our worship carefully so that if we have families that come in that have a weaker conscience or for the sake of a group setting, young children that haven't learned as much discernment, there is a level of safety here so that you don't have to go home as a parent and say, how am I going to justify what the church did today to my kids? How am I going to explain that to my kids? We want that level of safety. We want it in in our attire. We want it in our music. We even want it in in our, how we operate. We operate perhaps a level a little bit above even the biblical expectation, so that we can be above reproach, beyond reproach doctrinally, beyond reproach materially. That's a desire of our church. That's why we've chosen many of the things we've chosen. And perhaps this understanding of our freedoms in Christ will help you understand a little bit more of why we do what we do as a church. Second, your freedoms are in Christ, never apart from Christ. This is the great difference between the man who understands and uses his freedoms lawfully and the one who abuses his freedoms in Christ. If you are living out what you perceive to be your freedoms and in doing so you are offending the expectations of Scripture, then you are not using your freedoms lawfully. You are abusing the freedoms that you have in Christ. God has never given us the privilege of living apart from Christ's expectations. And this is important in the church. This means I don't just go out drinking so I can win alcoholics. I don't go doing drugs so I can win druggies. I don't talk vulgar or dress immodest so I can win the people that talk vulgar or dress immodest. I maintain the expectations and the distinctions of Jesus Christ. I maintain what He wants me to maintain in order that I can honor Him. Because if we're just like Him, then what are people going to be attracted to if we're just like the world? 
If somebody can come from the world into the church and feel entirely comfortable and feel entirely like they belong here and feel entirely like there's no difference between these people and me, well then how are they going to be one to Christ? If there's no difference, then why should we accept any difference, right? You're telling me the gospel will make me different, but you are just like me, so how is the gospel going to make me different? The gospel hasn't made you different. You're telling me the gospel will make me more godly. You still swear. You still go out and party on the weekends. You still watch those movies. You still laugh at those jokes. How has the gospel made you any different? That's not our liberty in Christ. That's abuse of our liberty in Christ. Now, it's my liberty in Christ to sit on that bus every morning that I sit on and listen to country music because that's what the driver listens to to keep him and her awake. They both listen to the same station. It's kind of ironic. So I only have a gap of about 30 seconds. And I'm not sinning by sitting there hearing that music pour into my ears for three hours. I have a liberty in Christ because of the situation that I'm in because of the job that I have. But if I were to tell them, yeah, I love these songs that encourage drinking and adultery and immorality and every vice under the sun. Yeah, that's, that's one of my favorites. Well, then when I start to tell them about the distinctions of a Christian life, what's it going to tell them that I'm trying to teach them that they're sinners before a holy God who doesn't appreciate, as a matter of fact, who hates adultery, who hates fornication, who hates immorality, who hates drunkenness. What are they going to think about me when I tell them that the God I serve hates these things and yet I love these songs that encourage it? That's abuse of our liberty in Christ. So your freedoms are in Christ. They're not apart from Christ. Third and finally, your obligation is not to your life and conscience as much as it is to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So your obligation is to that which is best. Your obligation is to that which, which um, is in line with your, your weaker brethren's conscience. Finally, your obligation is to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon that chapter 9 does far more than simply present Paul's example of limiting his liberties it also presents a very different reason for limiting our liberties for the sake of the effectiveness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we live this life, we live with complete alignment to the commands and expectations of God's Word for our precepts and our principles, and then we live according to the leading of the Holy Spirit for our conscience and our standards. But many Christians have this concept backwards. They allow their conscience to override the clear commands of Scripture. So they'll say something like this. I don't feel guilty when I do that, so it must be okay. And you can open up the Bible and you can show them where the biblical expectation is something different and they'll say, yeah, but I don't feel guilty, so I think I'm okay. Essentially, what they're doing is they're allowing their heart to control their actions. And we know from Jeremiah 17 that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. 
So rather than being led by God, many Christians are in fact being led by the flesh in the guise of obeying God. So they're either following their conscience and their conscience is giving them every liberty or they're following their standards and their standards are, are constraining them to a legalistic system and either way they're not following the Word of God. They're not being constrained and motivated by the Word of God. They're being motivated by some self-righteous or internal standard. But what Paul tells us in these verses is that even in those areas where our spirit-led conscience does have liberty, those areas of standards and living, we are still expected to allow the necessities of the Gospel and the necessities of, our weaker, of the weaker brethren to override our liberties. Folks, this is a really big deal. And this is an area that we all need to improve on. What Paul is telling us is that my life is not really about what I want. We all know that our desire for our lives should take the back seat to God's desire. It's almost cliche now for us to say that, right? Get in the back seat. Let God lead. You take a back seat to God. But Paul has told us for the past two weeks that God's desire in our lives is that we would place the needs of others above our own wants. That we would limit our, our liberties for the sake of the brethren, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of getting the good news of Jesus Christ out into a lost and dying world. But let me tell you one final exciting thing about Paul's message here. And something we'll come back to in, in two weeks' time. Your limitations and your sacrifices in this life accrue interest in the next To whatever degree you are willing to limit your freedoms and liberties in this life, you will find excessive blessing in the next. To whatever degree you are willing to place the conscience of of another believer and the necessity of the gospel ahead of your own pleasures and liberties, you will find untold blessings in the life to come. And that is the message that Paul is exemplifying and that will be the message he will state in verses 24 through 27, which we'll get through in two weeks. The rubber meets the road here. Remember, over a month ago, we were talking about the foundation for all of Paul's teachings in this. And we said that it is that God owns us body and soul. And that He is 100% sovereign over us by right and by purchase. If you believe that, then you must understand what the Scriptures are teaching us. That you have an obligation to others and to the Gospel by way of your obligation to God. Now, what does this mean for us? Some questions. How much of your liberty in Christ are you willing to give for the sake of the gospel? Would you be willing to yield your life for the sake of the gospel? Would you be willing to yield your liberties? Are you willing to yield your liberties for the sake of the gospel? How much of your liberty is Christ asking you to give up for the sake of the gospel. You know, not everyone is called to be a missionary and to give everything that they have to go to a foreign field. But is He calling you to do such a thing? Not everyone is called to be a pastor and give up financial opportunities for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know the weird looks I get when I'm driving as a paraprofessional on a bus and then I tell them I have a master's degree? get some really weird looks. Same weird looks I got when I was valeting at the hospital. People come up to me 
and start talking down to me and say, so when are you going to go to college? And I say, actually, I've had eight years of post-secondary education now. Got two bachelor's degrees and I have a master's degree. And they look at me like, are you crazy? How much are you making? About eleven fifty an hour. Yeah. Not everyone's going to be asked to do such a thing so that they can be flexible for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But is he asking you to do such a thing for the gospel of Jesus Christ? What are you doing for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you given up anything for the gospel? I do not desire this message to be a guilt trip message except to the degree that the Holy Spirit might be convicting your heart. But look folks, we've got door knocking that's starting in a couple of weeks. We had Parkview Care Service last Sunday. We have evangelistic opportunities and we had missions conference a couple of weeks ago. Folks, this church does not demand a whole lot of your time, but are you willing to give a little bit extra of your time? Are you willing to get a little bit less sleep? Are you willing to spend a little bit of less time doing what you would normally do on, on some evening in order to further the gospel of Jesus Christ in this area? I know you can't make it to everything. I know you're busy. Folks, this church isn't going to build itself. God's going to build it through the hands and the work of God's people. I, <laughs> I envision every week that all of a sudden we have a big crowd of people that are just going to walk through this door and say, this is the church we've always been looking for. And it might happen. It might happen one of these days. But it hasn't happened yet. We've had a few here and there that have said such a thing. You know, it might be, and my, my friend that lives out in Montana told me this a couple weeks ago. He said, you know what? It sounds like your church is going to be the one where you're going to have to win them to Christ and disciple them up. He said, it doesn't sound like your church in your area is going to be a, an area where you're going to open the doors of a Baptist church and everyone's going to say, finally, we have a Baptist church. It sounds like it's going to be one where you're going to be going out and you're going to be winning souls to Christ and they're going to be coming in and you're going to have to disciple a lot of new believers and that's the way it's going to have to be. It's the same way in his area in Missoula. And it'll be the same way when he goes to Japan. You're not going to be able to put up a Baptist down south, put up a church on a corner, slap Baptist on it, and you know, you're supporting five missionaries full-time the first week you're open, right? Not quite. But you know, it's different up here. Folks, are you giving anything to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Paul said, I'm not even, I'm not even living in the necessities of life. I'm not even accepting a, a paycheck from you. I'm not a, even accepting any financial help from you. I am working as a tent maker so that I'm not chargeable to you, so that I can proclaim boldly from the pulpit, if you do not work, then you should not eat, and you will believe me and not think that I'm just a charlatan. He says, this is what I'm doing and I'm not doing it for you and I'm not doing it for me. He said, I'm doing it because the gospel of Jesus Christ is my call. Because this is my life. Because this is what I have been chosen by God to do. What does God want you to do? Are there liberties that you are exercising? Maybe it's time. Maybe it's activities. I don't know what it might be. Are there liberties that you're exercising? They're not wrong. They're not sinful. But, every, but your liberties come in conflict with opportunities to share the gospel and you are choosing your liberties 
above the gospel? Are there times where you choose to do what you want to do at the expense of an opportunity to be a blessing to other believers, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, to exhort one another? Paul is an amazing example of a man who willingly limited his liberties for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to whatever degree the Holy Spirit is expecting or asking you to do the same, may I encourage you this morning to submit yourself unto it. Because Paul said his reward in this life was knowing that he was fulfilling Christ's purpose for him. I guarantee you, on the authority of God's Word, you will never, ever, ever regret yielding some of your liberty for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You might think now and say, oh, really? But when you've done it, the blessing of God upon that sacrifice that you have given to Him will be great. And there will be tremendous joy in your heart through the Spirit of God for the sacrifices you are willing to give in this life, those liberties that you're willing to give up for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.